Hello. I have an invitation to tea with the Queen. Yes, Emma's been expecting you. Please come in. I think that we just massively underestimate, especially as women, our own capability and awesomeness. And it, it's changed. It's changed my life completely. Yeah. Sometimes I think you go through this journey as a business owner and think you're a bit crazy. You're like, who am I to have this dream? Well, I just think women are hard on themselves. I wish I had been more confident in what I was capable of. But I feel like you do what feels right for you, then that's going to be always on brand. Women, our natural inclination is to be pleasers and to put other people before self. I've never had a tea with the Queen before and this is such a pleasure. <laughs> Hello, I'm Emma McQueen and welcome to Tea with the Queen. We all owe a lot to those people who spend their spare time helping others. Whether it's for the state emergency services, St John's Ambulance or even the local footy club. We're lucky in this country to have a rich culture of volunteerism, and we're very, very lucky to have someone like Megan Buntine, who's been volunteering for as long as she can remember. For instance, she's a volunteer and an advocate for a disabled bloke, who, with Megan's support, has been able to live independently for the past 15 years. On top of everything she does, Megan's spent 30 years working in not-for-profits and today she advises on the governance of not-for-profits through her own consulting services from her hometown of Buxton, about 100 kilometres northeast of Melbourne. If you're running a business, Megan has a strong message on how important governance is in the private sector too. I'm sure you'll be inspired as much as I was chatting with Megan. Megan, welcome to Tea with the Queen. <laughs> it's been a while. I've been wanting to get you on here for a while. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm great. Thanks, Emma. Thanks for having me along. It's great to talk to you. Oh, it's awesome. We're going to have a terrific interview. I understand you've always been drawn to helping others. Where did that serving of others come from? Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually. I've been thinking about this. You know, since I was a kid, I've always had a bit of a sense of social justice I've always been drawn to supporting the underdog and, you know, helping people out when I've seen that they're doing it tough. And I think, you know, that was as much as I don't really remember it being overtly encouraged when I was a kid, but I think that's where it obviously started. Mum was a brownie leader when I was little and I remember even before I was brownie age being so excited about being able to go to brownies. And I think that journey through brownies and guides, which at the time I thought was terribly daggy, I think it sort of reinforced that sense that I'd sort of had as, as a young kid and grown up in that environment. And I think, you know, in hindsight, it, it actually gave me some pretty sound foundations in life. Yeah. I mean, I love the brownies. I was a girls' brigader and um, I just love the sense of community and the sense of social justice. And even though it's a bit embarrassing to admit now. But anyway, tell me, you've gone above and beyond raising money and pulling up your sleeves for a cause. Can you tell us about the time you dressed as a chicken? <laughs> oh, that was a bit crazy. I was on a board for a community leadership organisation and we had a fundraising effort to raise money to be able to provide a sponsorship to the next year's program. So we had an, an annual program and I think at the time it was about five or $6,000 to join that program. So the alumni from previous programs had come together as an alumni subcommittee. We're a fairly young organisation and so one of our things as the alumni subcommittee, we were committed to providing this annual scholarship, right? So we decided, okay, well, what's something really crazy that we can do that's really going to attract people's attention 
And I don't know where the idea came from, but we had this brilliant idea that we were going to do a walkathon with a difference. So our difference was we were all going to get dressed up as chickens and walk the Great Victorian Rail Trail for five kilometres and get people to sponsor us, right? So we created quite a spectacle, I have to say, down at the old Yay station one Saturday morning when nine of us dressed up in these ridiculous-looking chicken uh, costumes. You, you'd be surprised what you can do with a pair of rubber gloves when it comes to chicken costumes. <laughs> but um, my spiel when I was getting people to sponsor me was, would you pay 50 bucks to see me walk 5Ks dressed as a chicken? And you know what? It, because it's so crazy and different, it really resonates with people you know between the nine of us which is not a lot of people to raise five or six thousand dollars we made our target and exceeded our target actually and I remember because I get a bit competitive when it comes to fundraising call it competitive fundraising if you like and I, I got the award for the highest amount of sponsorships and, and raked in $1,650 just on my own. So uh, we had wow, a, we had a fun day and it was thankfully the weather was great and we had people, you know, friends and family joined us and we even had people stopping us along the bike track saying, what on earth are you women doing? And giving us, you know, chucking five bucks into the bucket along the way. So, yeah, it was a great day. And I think, you, you know, when you're looking at fundraising, you've got to think about what can you do that's a little bit different that's going to attract people's attention and it's, you know, not just another walk. Walkathon, well, no, it's a walkathon with a difference. So, yeah, that was that was the story of why I dressed up as a chicken, and such a good story about the woman that I know about community and camaraderie and all of that kind of stuff. I think you you've just told us so much about you in <laughs> one story. <laughs> well, I think I I tend to live my life by the the old adage that you know you, you might have to take your work seriously, but you don't have to take yourself seriously. <laughs> totally, I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> You've been a volunteer and an advocate for more than 20 years for a gentleman with a disability. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I guess continuing that path into social justice and human rights, when I was at uni I started a casual job working in group homes for people who have disabilities and that really kicked off for me the awakenings of an awareness of the challenges that so many people face in their life journey and, you know, often through no fault of their own they find themselves in really tricky and challenging situations. So. I met this particular person, Brendan is his name, in 1996 when I was actually by that stage working in disability houses had become my accidental career. I was at uni doing a science degree when I first started doing it but sort of fell into this as my career. So I met him in 1996 when I was the house supervisor at the respite house that he used to access to give his family a bit of a break. He was in his early 20s then and I was in my late 20s and we sort of clicked and it was interesting because he had a bit of a reputation as as being a little bit challenging at times and when I started there as a house supervisor he was actually the way we talked back then was just horrendous but he was actually suspended from the, from the facility <laughs> because he'd had a Oops. bit of an outburst and so you know we were in the process of trying to bring him back into the the facility so he could access that support and his family could access that support and you know we had um, all these meetings with case managers and psychologists and so on and so I'd never met this person in my life I was expecting this you know six foot ten built like a you know the proverbial um to, yeah that's it <laughs> I was trying to be polite um to walk in the door and the first day he came back in he came back in for afternoon tea that day and he's he's about five foot nothing he's got a wicked sense of humor he's just full on he's always wanted to talk to people he's very social and we just sort of hit it off and during the time that I was working at that particular home I started to sort of think about 
you know, how I could contribute through advocacy work. And there was uh, Brendan and his family, I could see that, you know, he had some pretty high support needs, despite the fact that, you know, he could carry on a conversation and he, he was quite mobile. He had lots of other challenges. So I was thinking about his family don't have a lot of family supports because his parents are from New Zealand. Uh, he's just had the one sister and there was another there was him and another guy who I thought you know these guys are really going to need support later on in life and the other person had a lot more family support around him so I thought no I'll speak to Brennan's parents and and offer to be his advocate well it's sort of like I'm his and their advocate because he his life is what it is because of the work that his parents have done for him so yeah so that was back in 1996 and and they sort of accepted my offer and um you know, in the intervening time, we've we've worked really hard. He's someone who can't live in a group home. He tried and it was terribly unsuccessful. So he requires a lot of one-to-one support. So we've, as you can imagine, I'm sure over the years, we've had to do a lot of lobbying with government to enable him to have the life that it just, you know, it's not like we're, we're trying to create a gold-plated life for him. We're just trying to create an ordinary life for him that any of the rest of us would expect. And so I'm really pleased to be part of the team that's that's helped him to achieve that. You know, he lives in a house on his own um, with staff support and has done that for, gosh, probably 15 years now before, you know, the NDIS even came on the scene and, you know, individualised funding and support was even a thing. He was getting that because we all advocated strongly for him. That's amazing. That's actually amazing. How important is volunteering in our community, do you think? Oh, look, I think it's it's terribly important. You know, governments could never hope to provide all the functions in our communities that volunteers do. You've just got to look at the news at the moment in that current flood situation that is being experienced and you know all the people filling sandbags people you know the SES is out there rescuing stranded people organizations and individuals are feeding displaced people and most of the people who are doing that work are volunteers when you think about not-for-profit organizations which are the, the bulk of the organizations that I work with you know, so many of them operate with um, volunteers, whether it's that they've got a volunteer workforce on the ground who actually does the operational stuff of what they do, or even the bigger not-for-profits that have multi-million dollar budgets and big teams of staff, you know, nine times out of 10, they're board members of volunteers. So without people who are prepared to put in the time and offer their skills to the organisations, they would find it really hard. I think there's the not-for-profit sector starting to consider, do we need to start paying our board members? I think the conversations are starting to happen, but I don't know of many that have actually made that change because I think at the core of what not-for-profits do and their value set, it's really about contribution and they sort of have this thing that, will know, we shouldn't have to pay our board members to do that. It's interesting because my next question was around, do you think we're losing that sense of community and volunteering that goes with it? But very clearly you don't feel like that. And I suppose from an outsider looking in, the volunteering community comes together, well, media brings it together based on crisis and on, you know, floods or fires or whatever is happening. That's when you really see the community take hold and do the volunteering. Do you feel like we're losing a sense of community or do you feel like that community is still strong and therefore so are the volunteers? You know, I think in some ways we are losing that sense of community a bit. Volunteering's on the decline, well, worldwide really. I mean, Australia's still got some of the highest rates of volunteering in the world, but our volunteering is declining as well. And, of course, COVID hasn't helped with that situation. Um, I was talking to one organisation, a charity uh, recently 
And they were saying that, you know, obviously their volunteers all had to stand down during the pandemic and the lockdowns. And even now, 25% of them still haven't come back. So, you know, it's hard and and people are, are less and less engaged. And I think we've got to find ways to really inspire younger people to get involved in volunteering. I think that they are. We've just got to find what's in it for them because it's different, I think, for previous generations perhaps gone by. So if we can think about it from the point of view of, makes you more attractive to an employer or it gives you work-ready skills. It helps you connect with like-minded people, all those sorts of things that, that will resonate with them to get them more involved. I think that's a really important thing. Yeah, and I also think that we have to make the volunteering meaningful. I volunteered in a respite centre when I was 18 for five years and it was for kids who had high needs and I worked over the weekend so their parents had a weekend off. And it was super meaningful work and it was purpose-driven work and I loved doing it. And then I volunteered in Samoa for seven years and went over there and and went with doctors and nurses. And I'm not a doctor or a nurse. I was the children's entertainment. But I was part of a bigger group of doctors and nurses who were providing really, uh, well, really needed medical care. And I think that it's the changing face of volunteering that probably needs to shift into something meaningful for people. Otherwise, you can't just say, yeah, we need volunteers to garden or to paint this wall or whatever especially the younger generation, they're going to need the meaningfulness of work. Well, that's what I think anyway. Yeah, look, I think you're right. And I think the key to that is we need to ask young people, you know, what's meaningful for them. And I think, you know, there still is a place for, um, and corporate volunteers are doing it through corporate social responsibility programs, going out and, you know, painting the wall or doing the gardening. And I think that's something that's really increased or maybe it's just I've noticed it more but sort of in the last 15 years I've seen a lot more corporates who are taking that corporate social responsibility function really seriously. I live in the area that was affected by the Black Saturday bushfires and after that experience we had lots of like the big corporates in town I'm talking like the banks and the the power companies and you know the big accounting firms all those sorts of organizations sending their teams of volunteers out um, just helping us do stuff on the ground and it was just amazing. So I think that, you know, there is a place for that. And even through that, you know, the the big corporates, I've got a couple of them that I work with that they have dedicated programs to help their people to connect with not-for-profits as board members. So they're bringing their skills and expertise, you know, whether they're an accountant or a, a lawyer or some sort of other professional that is really when we're looking at increasingly looking for skills-based board members for our not-for-profits, you know, this is where we can find these guys and, you know, they're looking to do something. I mean, some people take the view that, well, they're just trying to build their board CV and I think, well, so what, you know, if they give us a few years of service along the way and who knows, they might actually fall in love with us and stay a bit longer. So totally, it's a win-win. Yeah, I mean, you've been working in not-for-profits for 30 years. What do you think makes a well-functioning modern not-for-profit? I know it might be a trick question. <laughs> no, look, I think that at the heart of it, you've got to have good governance. And I mean, of course, I'd say that because that's what I bang on about all the time. Eh? But <laughs> yeah. it starts at the top. It really does. You know, whether you're a, a small local community group like a land care or a, I don't know, a, a men's shed or something, mind you, some of the men's sheds are, are not that small way up to the bigger not for profits. You've got to have that good governance in place and that. I think the expectations over recent decades have increased and there's there's more pressure on on even the smallest of not-for-profits to get this stuff right. And sometimes it's about changing the mindset of the people who sit on those small local committees to understand that 
good governance is not an add-on. It's actually what underpins whatever it is you do that adds value to the community. If you don't get this stuff right, if you don't have your good planning in place, your good risk management, your compliance, those sorts of things right, then it's going to really impact on your capacity to deliver what it is your organisation exists to do. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, now you've given me a foray into you've started Megan J. Buntine Consulting Services. You've had that for a number of years. You said you've done governance, but tell us what else do you do and who do you help? So, as I said, I work with not-for-profits predominantly these days, but I do also work with with businesses a little bit too. But I work with their boards and their CEOs to help them really strengthen that good governance for their organisations, build their strategic capabilities, build their leadership capabilities, those sorts of things. So really getting a strong oversight of the organisation so that they can be really confident that they're doing things appropriately, that they're, uh, that they're best placed to deliver really kick-ass services at the end of the day to the people who they serve. So I do this through my governance training program. I have a range of other programs, but sort of governance is the the heart of what I do. Through my strategic planning facilitation work that I do, I do also do CEO coaching. So, you know, having spent many, many years in a whole range of managerial roles and had to supervise and support staff in those roles, I guess I've taken those skills of mentoring, coaching, sounding board, professional supervision, all the things that you do for the staff that report to you. And I've put that into a package that I now deliver to CEOs and sort of the next level of executives. But also I've developed a program where I do very similar sort of support for board chairs because I think both those two roles, the CEO role and the board chair role, can sometimes be quite isolated and you know it's like you've got to set the example you've got to set the standard but what happens when you're having a really crap day and you need to debrief and unload on someone or if you've got something that's really bothering you it's really tricky and you're trying to work out how to navigate that through oftentimes for example for a CEO well they can't talk to their direct reports about it but sometimes they can't talk to the chair about it either because it might be you know an issue that perhaps with the chair or that they feel that they're going to make themselves vulnerable and that's not going to necessarily go down well. So I think having that external support, someone who they can have a confidential conversation and supportive conversation and help them, you know, troubleshoot things is really important. I think it's also important for them to have good peer networks as well. You know, the people who I do that coaching with, I always say, you know, what's well, it's one of the first conversations we have, you know, what's your peer network that you've got to support? You can bounce off other CEOs as well. Sure. I mean, you talked about good governance. Tell us what's the difference between good governance and bad governance? Um, look, I think good governance is maintaining that focus on, you know, who are we as an organisation? What's our purpose? Why do we even exist? What are we trying to achieve? So what's our, our vision for the future? Who are we from the point of view of our values and, you know, what do we stand for? And always keeping that in sight and having that inform all the decisions that you make, you know, having a commitment to good strategy, maintaining cultural oversight of the organisation, ensuring that we've got a good organisational culture. So many organisations I see that don't and that, that can be really really challenging for the organisation and it, I mean, it can be a lot of work to turn it around but it's well worth doing that hard work. You know, making sure that you've got good financial oversight and good risk oversight but also continuous improvement mindset as well. So 
that commitment to keeping up with contemporary practice and a commitment to right relationships with the people you serve or your internal people or your external stakeholders. So there's a whole bunch of stuff, I think, that goes into good governance. I guess bad governance is, is a lack of focus on any number of those areas. Sometimes it's because there's nothing in place in those areas, but equally I've seen organisations that have spent a lot of time and effort and money, quite frankly, putting a lot of things into place, putting all the good practice things in place, but then they don't actually follow through and implement them. So if you're not going to do that, you might as well not have them in the first place. Yeah, exactly. I think also there's a lot of not-for-profits out there. There's a lot of not-for-profits. You know, people create a not-for-profit for a whole variety of reasons, and especially when they're grassroots not-for-profit, sometimes some of the governance stuff just isn't in place because they're a bit entrepreneurial, they kind of move pretty quickly and then eventually they go, holy crap, we've reached a size where we actually need to do something with it. But I also think the governance thing is having good governance is important for business as well, not just not-for-profits and not just for charities. It's good for business. Exactly. And I think oftentimes in our in our own businesses, particularly if we have small businesses, we sort of forget that because we're so busy doing the doing, doing the business development, doing the delivery, that it's sort of, it gets pushed to the side. But I think equally, it's just as important because it can make such a difference. You know, we see it happening in not-for-profit or government organisations that they always seem to be planning all the time, plan, 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 but it actually it helps them to deliver really well and be really focused and really strategic. And look, I think the other thing is with good governance is to remember that it's a journey, it's not a destination, it's not a tick and flick, it's something you do and you keep doing and it's a it's a continual cycle of, you know, do, implement, review, check, do again. So we can that's that continuous improvement mindset, I guess, that I referred to before. Yeah. International Day of People with Disabilities coming up. It's on December 3rd. You've been a supporter and an advocate in the disability sector for many years. What can we all do to support people with disabilities? I think that that's a really that's a really interesting question and I think in to answer that I will quote a wonderful lady by the name of Christina Ryan and she's the founder and CEO of the Disability Leadership Institute. She's based out of Canberra but she she obviously supports people with disability who are getting into that leadership space all over the country and internationally in fact she's been spoken to the UN all sorts of things and she put out an article recently talking about just this. What she talks about is about being a disability ally. So An ally is someone who steps back and listens to people who have disabilities and wants to know what, you know, what's important to them. What do they want to do? What are their goals and aspirations? An ally is someone who obviously can't know what the disability experience is like. So you turn to people who have got that lived experience and ask them, you know, what do we need to do here? What's important? How do we make sure that we're being inclusive and accessible and all those things? An ally is someone who seeks to put people with a disability out in front when opportunities come along. So it's almost like metaphorically pushing people to the front and taking a step back yourself. At the end of the day, allies, they get out of the way and they let people get on with it. But it's it's also a case of walking alongside of people and letting them know that you're there to support them. 
along the way. You know, it, it, I think it's fantastic that we've got some amazing people who have disabilities who are being appointed to leadership roles. So like Kurt Fernley as the chair of the NDIA. It's just a shame they couldn't get it right and appoint a CEO that also had a disability. But there you go, maybe next time. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think, again, it's a journey, isn't it? We're on a continuum. But the sooner we can support the there's you know there's some amazing people out there with some amazing skills and a lived experience of disability they should be stepping to the front and the rest of us should be getting out of their way yeah I agree or at least encouraging them to step to the front yeah absolutely you know because getting out of the way kind of feels a little bit passive whereas encouraging them to step up mm. yeah, it's step both up to the front it's both. Yeah. yeah yeah it's both Hey, it's been lovely chatting with you. I love learning more about you and you have been, I mean, I've worked with you for just over a year now and it's been amazing working with you. Is there anything else that you wish I had asked that I haven't asked? Um, no, look, there's nothing really that I can think of, but the people who listen to your podcast and follow your information, I mean, they're largely women in business like you and I, and I think that you know, a lot of them are probably sitting on whether it's, you know, the local kinder committee or whether it's a, a corporate board and a not-for-profit, we're all contributing. I remember someone saying, you, you know, you either contribute your time, your talent or your treasure. And so a lot of your audience, I'm sure, are out there doing that. And I guess for me to offer them some support, I'd like to sort of say, put it out through you that if anyone needs any help with their good governance, that as a special Emma McQueen offer to them, that I'd, I'd love to chat with them and, and give them a free not-for-profit checkup, governance checkup with me to help them sort of look inwardly to their organisation, see if there's anywhere there that they can get on that continuous in, improvement journey and, and change things, mix things up, improve what the, the way they're doing things. Oh, thank you, Megan. That's awesome. I think that there are probably a lot of people listening to into us who do do that. So if you have loved what Megan has talked about in this episode and you'd like to reach out, please reach out to Megan. We'll put her details in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us, Megan. Thank you, Emma. It's been wonderful to chat with you today as always. Thanks for listening to Tea with the Queen. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help to get the word out. For more about me, please visit emmamcqueen.com.au and I look forward to your company next episode. Goodbye. Thank you for coming.